Good to be with you again tonight. Uh, if you could open a Bible to Luke chapter 19, uh, that would be great. And as always, if you forgot your Bible or you don't own a Bible, there's some Bibles on that back table by the giving box. And um, if you don't own a Bible especially, we would love for you to grab one of those Bibles and take it home uh, with you as our gift to you. Uh, we want everyone to have a Bible. So um, just take that home with you. That would honor us if you did that. Um, but yeah, as we're looking at this passage tonight, uh, I've been thinking about how interesting it is uh, how, as people, we're always changing. Uh, but rarely, if ever, do we seem to change overnight. We rarely change overnight. I mean, I've thought even this week about different people and life experiences I've had and things that I've really looked forward to. And I would even say those things are some of my favorite experiences in my life, but I, I wasn't different from them. Um, like, for example, I thought about how years ago it was on my bucket list to see uh, the band Coldplay play live in concert. And, and they were supposedly on their farewell tour. And so my wife Elizabeth got us tickets to go see them in the Bay Area at Levi's Stadium. And we went and it was uh, phenomenal. It was amazing. And it was just a juke because they did ended up not having, you know, closing up shop on their band. And so they're still around. But nonetheless, we went to this concert and it was amazing. And I left there thinking that night, this is one of my top five favorite experiences you know, having seen what I just saw, but uh, what's weird is I left and I'm still the same Josh, you know. I just maybe have a story now, but I'm still the same Josh. Or um, I, I wanted to go to Maui forever in my life, and we got to go to Maui, and it was amazing and, and beautiful and relaxing, and it lived up to the expectations I had for it, but I left, and I was still the same Josh. You know, maybe I have more of a base tan now, but that's basically it, and that's questionable even as well. So um, just there's so many things in life that we look forward to and want to experience. We'd even say that was life transforming. You would think it would be, but we walk away unchanged. Um, but there are times, I think, that if we're being honest, we go through them and we leave and we, we know that we will never be the same again. You know, we walk through some things that are, you know, lots of tremendous grief um, in our lives, um, maybe that for you, that, that's you lost a friend that you love, uh, maybe a child, uh, maybe you went through a horrible divorce, and you know from that, you, you leave that event or that experience and you go, I'm not going to be the same person again. Or, or the other side of that, there's tremendous joy that we can experience in life, and, and, and you walk away knowing I'm not going to be the same again. You walk down the aisle, and you're announced husband and wife, or you hold that baby in your arms for the first time, and you look at that child knowing this is not someone else's baby. I'm bringing this child home, right? This is, I'm the parent, you know. Or, or maybe for you, it's, it's you having someone who's your closest friend and for years not being honest with them about who you are. And you finally open up to them and you're met, instead of with shame, you're met with grace. And you leave those moments and you can see, I, I will never be the same again. But those moments are pretty rare. But what's interesting is that with Jesus, this is always true. This is always true. Uh, when we're looking at Luke, if you could think back to Luke chapter 9, we read that Jesus, at that point in Luke's gospel, he turns his face towards Jerusalem, and he's on a journey there. And now, where we're getting at tonight, Jesus is just about like 15 miles away. He's right outside Jerusalem, and this is the last bit that Luke records before he even enters the city, the city of the, the, city of the king. 
And the king is entering that city. And, and what we find here in this last bit before he enters the city is Luke's record of his final dinner that he records, other than the next dinner, which will be the Passover dinner. And this is the last parable in Luke's gospel that Jesus tells. And what we're seeing here in our passage is that it is possible to be associated with Jesus and to never be changed by him. It's possible to be associated by Jesus and never be changed by him, but it's impossible to truly receive Jesus and to remain unchanged. And what we're actually then seeing is a life changed by Jesus invests in eternity. This is what Luke is doing as he's putting together this story, this famous story of Zacchaeus and this famous parable of investing. So what I want us to see in verses 1 through 10 of the story of Zacchaeus is the seeker is sought and found. And then secondly, we're going to see that the found invests in eternity. The found invests in eternity. Our lives are changed to invest in eternity. Uh, So let's look first at the seeker is sought and found, beginning of verse 1. I'll I'll read verses 1 through 10, and we'll look at that section, then we'll look at the next section as we get there. But verse 1, it says, He entered Jericho, so Jesus entered Jericho, and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You guys, this is really important to realize. Religion, religion is us trying to pursue God. But as we are seeing here in this story, the Christian message is the exact opposite. Our faith settles into this understanding that Christianity is about God pursuing us. It's about God pursuing us. And what we're seeing here is, is Luke holding up this guy named Zacchaeus. He says, behold Zacchaeus, check him out, right? Verse 2, we know a few things about Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, which we've talked about tax collectors. They um, were hated by the Jewish people because they were seen to be in cahoots with the Roman authorities. So they're, they're you know, going out collecting taxes to pay to Caesar. But in order for them to earn their keep, they're going to charge you more than you actually owe so that they have a little bit of a financial situation for themselves. So Zacchaeus here, he's the chief tax collector, so he's like managing all those people is what we're supposed to understand. And so we are believed to understand that he is rich. Then we're told in verse 3 that he also, though being rich and being a chief tax collector, he is a seeker. He's a seeker. He was seeking to get his eyes on Jesus. And lastly, we learn in verse 3 that he was a small man in stature. Most people think that this meant that he was at least under five feet tall, right? So this made seeing Jesus in the midst of a crowd a pretty big problem, right? I mean, just like if you've ever been to a parade or something like that, um, height is helpful, 
right? You know, if you want to see what's really going on. So how does he fix this conundrum? Verse 4 tells us that he ran on ahead and he climbs a sycamore tree to see Jesus because Jesus was about to pass by that tree. Now, I know that if you've been familiar with the Bible for any length of time, this is a pretty familiar story to you. But I don't want you to miss what's happening here. I mean, just think about what it took for Zacchaeus to climb in that tree. I don't mean the physical part of it, right? We can imagine what that looks like, right? But he's this big guy in town, right? And no one probably likes him. And yet he's small in stature, which probably was something that bothered him or that, you know, maybe he was even teased about his entire life. So here we have a grown man in a tree, okay? I mean, just imagine if next week you came to church and I'm out there hanging out in one of the trees greeting you like, hey, you know, good to see you, Josh. Hey, Dan, you know, hey guys, how's it going? Right, you would look up and immediately be like, oh my gosh, what is happening? Right, no one's gonna think, wow, he's so cool. Like, look at him, the way he's greeting us from that tree. No one's gonna have that thought. You're all gonna go, man, I don't know if I can come to church here anymore, right? Because at the end of the day, we, we don't expect to see adults in a tree. And if they are, we kind of begin to question, is everything okay? right? Children, on the other hand, are people that we expect to see in a tree, and we go, I remember when I did that, you know? And so here we go. We have this man in a tree, and just as well, this would have been the understanding. This would have been what people maybe would have sought or thought of him. So think about it. This cost Zacchaeus something, right? He had to set aside his pride. He had to set aside what other people thought about him. He had to set aside his dignity. And they all would have known the reason you're up there is because you're small. I wonder today, I don't know all of you in this room, and so I wonder today how many of you resonate with Zacchaeus, right? You know, you're, you're here and you are seeking Jesus. You're seeking to see him. Are you, are you trying to get your eyes on him tonight? And if this is you, I'm so glad that you are here and, and we want you to be here. We want you to feel very welcome here. We want this to be a safe place for you to, to explore who Jesus is. But what I also want you to understand is that ultimately seeing Jesus requires taking a little bit of a risk in your life. I mean, you might have the thoughts even, I don't want people to know that I'm going to church. I don't want people to know that I'm exploring who Jesus is. But, but here, Zacchaeus, this is a good representation of the kind of risk, at minimum, that's required of actually seeing Jesus. But here's the most beautiful thing that you're going to find. As you are seeking to see Jesus, if you long to see him, this story is showing you that he already has his eyes on you. As you're seeking him, he already has his eyes on you. Because verse 5 tells us that when Jesus passed by, he looks up at him in the tree. I mean, just imagine that you're wanting to see a person so badly and you're just trying to get a look at them and they're passing by and they look up and they lock eyes with you. I mean, your heart would skip a beat, wouldn't it? Just a little bit, right? But then more so, he doesn't just look at him, he speaks to him. And he doesn't say, hey, you up in the tree. And he doesn't say, hey, you sinner, right? You dirty scoundrel of a man or whatever, you know? He says, hey, Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus. 
Right? Notice the urgency and forwardness of Jesus. He does what is so taboo in the Pacific Northwest. He invites himself over for dinner. Right? I mean, we're the opposite. We're like, hey, do you want to come over for dinner? You don't have to. I don't want you to feel bad. You know, we're so like passive aggressive and, you know, and even do you want to inconvenience anybody at all? And so the thought of inviting ourselves over for dinner is really intense, but Jesus just does so. Right? But he even goes further. He goes, I must stay at your house today, which just could have meant he's even going to stay the night. So Jesus has been planning this. This is a huge statement because Jesus is saying in this culture, I, Zacchaeus, want to have a relationship with you. I'm not just hungry. I want to have a relationship with you. That's what sharing a meal would signify. So Zacchaeus just wants to see Jesus, but Jesus wants a lot more than that. And then notice in verse 6 that Zacchaeus is thrilled, and we are told that he received Jesus joyfully, joyfully. But not everybody was thrilled, right? Look at verse 7. That tells us that when the crowd saw this, they grumbled. Why? Well, notice what the verse says. Jesus has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, which by implication means they don't really see themselves as that. Out of all the people in Jericho, why him, Jesus? Right? He's hated. See, they, they thought this guy was unworthy of Jesus' attention, right? That he was unworthy of the grace of God. That they'd written this guy off as he's too far. He's too far gone. He cannot be associated with Jesus. And so I wonder, who do we think? Who have we written off in our lives? as we look around the people that we know, the people in our city, the people in our area, the people in the world, who have you written off? See, thankfully, Jesus is is not worried about the impression this is making on other people. It kind of doesn't bother him. And so we're transported in verse 8 to this dinner scene, which we've seen in Luke's gospel a lot of dinners, and dinners in houses in that day were public affairs. The dining room was actually often attached to the courtyard. And so people would often stand outside of that courtyard and kind of seek to overhear the conversation, right? Which again, this is just so different than our world. Could you imagine someone standing outside your window trying to listen to your conversation? That's extremely creepy, right? But in this day, this was normal, right? And so this is what's happening. This is a public scene. And you're meant to know that. And so we see then Jesus comes into his house, he joyfully receives him, and his response to receiving Jesus joyfully is life-changing, right? He gives a dramatic statement, I'll give away half of my goods to the poor, right? I will restore those I've defrauded fourfold. This is crazy. This is crazy. I mean, has that thought ever come to your mind? Ever? Like, I'll give away half my stuff. I mean, what extravagant generosity, I mean, it was thought in that day that if you gave away 20% of your things that you were the most generous person, and if you gave away more than 20% that you were foolish, that you weren't wise, right? So, so how do you know if you know Jesus, right? How do you know if you've joyfully received him? Well, you'll have symptoms, right? And generosity is a symptom of those who have been infected with the grace of Jesus, that's what we're seeing here, that, that generosity is a symptom of those who've been infected with the grace of Jesus. If we freely give, 
what we have received, especially if that thing that we're freely giving is something that we used to really try to hold on to. That's a good sign that we have received Jesus joyfully, that we've experienced the grace of God, that we actually might know him. So we know that Zacchaeus knows Jesus because Jesus' words in verse 9 announce that salvation has come to this house. But, but also notice that salvation here is happening today. Right? Salvation has come because Jesus has come. And Jesus explains here um, that furthermore, that he is a son of Abraham. That he's not saved just because he's a part of the bloodline of Abraham, but he's saying that those who receive Jesus, any of you that receive Jesus, become through faith adopted as a son of Abraham. That you receive those same promises that were promised of what God was going to do through the bloodline of Abraham. All those stars that Abraham counted, the sand on on the shore, that through faith, when you joyfully receive Jesus, that you're counted in that family. Man, why is Jesus wasting his time here? He's got places to go. He's got things to do. He's got people to see. He's supposed to go to Jerusalem, right? Why is he stopping here? Well, this is his life's purpose, and this is clear. He, he, he explains here his clear calling and aim in life. What does he say? I came to seek and to save the lost, right? Jesus is the true seeker in the story, He's the true seeker in this story and in all of our stories. If you've been found by Jesus because he's sought you. And just to be really clear here, this this is talking about God being the seeker because we're meant to think of Ezekiel chapter 34 where God himself says, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out and I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. This is the heart of God. God is a seeker. He seeks the lost. And just think about how powerful this is because notice Jesus didn't say to Zacchaeus, you're a sinner, so before I come over to your house, you have to give away half of all that you have to the poor and then I'll, I'll come. No, he just comes over. He seeks the lost. He comes over before you're any different. He comes to us and we receive him as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are. He doesn't leave us as we are. See, it is impossible to truly receive Jesus and to remain unchanged. There's no example of this in the Bible. There's none. Zacchaeus is a seeker, but he is the one being sought and he is found. I don't know if you've ever lost Maybe something, but especially like a child. Have you ever lost a child? I'm the only one? Okay, well, this is going to be awkward. But yeah, I remember a few years ago, I was at a Walmart in Albany, all places, and Elizabeth wasn't with me, and if she was, this would never have happened, right? Not because it's not her fault, right? She's a better parent than me, that's what I mean, right? So if she was there, this never would have happened, but I was with Gus, who was like four at the time, and Isla and Tucker, we were leaving the store. It's like the Christmas season or something. And Gus was ahead of me and he ran on ahead to get to the car. And and I kind of chase after him. And when I get to the car, he's not there. And so I'm frantically looking all over the parking lot. Where is my son, right? Where's my son? I don't know if you've ever been there before, but it's, it's a terrifying moment, right? So I'm pacing the lot. And finally, someone drives by saying, are you looking for a little boy? I said, how did you know, right? And he said, I saw somebody take him into customer service. So I go into customer service. 
And I walk over to Gus and he's kind of in tears and I walk over and I grab him and he says, dad, I was looking for you, right? And I remember looking at him being like, dude, I was looking for you all along because before he was a seeker, he was a runner, right? (laughs) I was seeking him every step of the way, right? And that's true of all of our stories, right? So when Gus was with me, Gus was no longer lost, he was home. Because home is him being with me. And when he was with me, I gave him a new purpose, right? The new purpose was, hey, your mission in life, stick with me, right? Do what the family does, right? Walk with us, right? And that's what we're seeking, seeing here. The seeker is sought and the seeker is found and those that are found are given a purpose. And that purpose is to walk with the family, right? It's to invest in eternity, right? So we see this in verse 11 down to the end. As they heard these things, right, this story, as they saw what was happening with Zacchaeus, Jesus proceeds to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities." And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So we get insight into why Jesus tells this parable. You see the connection. He wants you to connect it to the Zacchaeus story. And it's important. In verse 11 says that he tells them the parable. Why? Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately. So they have this assumption. Jesus is the Messiah. He's about to enter the city of the king. The kingdom is coming right now. And so he tells them this story. So they think he's going to enter They're going to crown him. He's going to overthrow the Romans, right? And and usher in the new era of Israel, right? And and just think about what they just saw happen with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector. So maybe they're even thinking we won't even have more taxes, right? This is an amazing king. You know, we don't have to do these things anymore. We won't have Rome over us any longer as they're watching Zacchaeus give away all that he's defrauded them of. But they had their own assumptions and they weren't the right assumptions, when the kingdom would come and and what that kingdom would even be like. And if we're being honest, we have those same kind of false assumptions even today when we think about the kingdom, 
I mean, some people today will say to you that Jesus came to make you wealthy, that if you give them money, like a, a prosperity gospel preacher, if you give me money, right, then, then God will give you more, right? That's not why Jesus came. That's not even true. Right? Some assume that Jesus came for political reasons here and now, so that Jesus could establish a, a Christian nation or something like that, and, and therefore even enforce Christianity on other people. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. We've seen nations even try to do this. Some assume that Jesus was a great moral teacher and that he offers you great life hacks. And if you just listen to his teaching, then you'll live a great life and have great relationships and that sort of thing. But that's not why he's here. That's not what the kingdom of God is about, right? What is it about? He came to seek and to save the lost. And so verse 12 starts the parable saying that a nobleman goes to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and then he's going to return. And what you're meant to think of there is Jesus dying, rising from the dead, and ascending to the throne of God. He has received a kingdom. He reigns on the throne now over his kingdom. And one day he's going to return. That's the image we're meant to see here. And verse 14 tells you something, that the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. This is kind of the same language of John's gospel, chapter one, which talks about how Jesus, the creator, entered the world and he came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. They rejected him. So this is definitely talking about Israel in this instance, but it's also talking about the world as a whole. They've rejected the one true king. But look, there are some who receive his rule and his commission. So if you look at verse 13, he has 10 servants, and, and he, he wants to send them out, right? And he gives them 10 mina, uh, and they're charged to, what, engage in business until he returns, to take what they've received and to do something good with it that he would want them to do. A mina in this day and age was about 100 days wages for just an average worker. So this would be like the nobleman coming to you saying, here's $15,000, engage in business until I return, right? So it's it's interesting, too, to think about how this parable, if you've read other parts of the gospel, it kind of sounds like Matthew's parable of the talents, right? But they're completely different things because in the parable of the talents, people are given different proportions, right, to steward those gifts for kingdom purposes. But here, everyone gets the same amount of something. They all get the same mina, And it doesn't say according to their ability. No, there aren't any qualifications. This is about something else. And what this is saying is that we all, if you follow Jesus, if you've received the king joyfully in your life, you've received a mina, right? And and what is that? This is a reference to the gospel. That's what this is. It's a reference to the gospel. I mean, just think about how Paul writes to Timothy in, the, in, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and he refers to the gospel as the good deposit that's been entrusted to us. I've received a good deposit. I've received the gospel. We should also be thinking of Acts chapter 1, which Luke also wrote that bookends uh, the gospel of Luke and, and pair these 11 through 13 verses with chapter 1 of Acts verses 6 and 8 where the disciples are standing there with Jesus before he ascends and they're asking him the same question that's being asked here. Will you restore the kingdom now? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? Will you do it now, right? Is it now? This is like that kid in the car. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Is it coming? Is it coming? Right? And Jesus says, 
you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Jesus' point is that the kingdom is here now. It breaks into your life. But the kingdom isn't fully arrived yet. It will fully arrive when the king comes back. So in the meantime, build the kingdom. Spread the gospel, the good news of the king. So if you care about when the kingdom is coming, if you care about when the kingdom is coming, invest in that moment of eternity today. Invest in it today. I mean, this is such an important word for us today in a time where people seemingly more than usual are talking and wondering about, is Jesus coming back? They look around the world and like, oh, maybe he's coming back right now. Maybe he's coming back right now. And there are pastors, there are churches who are thriving off making predictions about Jesus coming back right now. But Jesus never tells us to fixate on the when, but to live in light of the what. He is coming back. And so in verses 15 through 19, we see these guys investing, engaging in the business, and they are called back to give an account of what they did while the nobleman was away. And so this shows us that when Jesus comes back, he is going to call all of us that have received the good deposit to give an account of what we've done with what we've been given. Right? This is telling you something that's true. What does this mean? Right? You see people say, well, it made 10 more. And he says, you'll be Lord over 10 cities and you'll reign over five. So does this mean that if you do a decent job, right, with your investment that you can reign over Seattle and Portland or wherever it is, like, I'm not telling you that, right? I have, we don't really know, right? But what we do know is there is eternal reward based upon how we live in this life. The New Testament talks about this all the time. What we need to know in this moment is that there is eternal reward. And what this is pointing us to understand is that eternity matters more than this life. It matters more than this life. Uh, I was reviewing uh, this famous speech that Steve Jobs gave during the Stanford commencement ceremony in 2005. And he he says, when I was 17, uh, I read a quote that went something like, if you live each day as if it were your last, someday you'll most certainly be right. It made an impression on me. And since then, for the past 33 years, I've looked in the mirror every morning and asked myself, if today were the last day of my life, what I want to do, what I'm about to do today. And whenever the answer has been no, for too many days in a row, I know I need to change something. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You are already naked. There is no reason not to follow your heart. That's a very famous commencement speech. And it captures well sort of the idea of our age, right? Remember 10 years ago, everyone who was cool was saying YOLO, right? Remember that? I never said it. It wasn't cool enough. You only live once, right? This whole idea is you're going to die someday, so live for the here and now, right? Steve says, live for the last day before you die because that's all you have. But Jesus doesn't agree with Steve, right? Jesus says, live for the first day 
after you die. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying live for the day that you die because it's coming. He's saying live for the first day after that day when you die. Live for that day. And this is what these servants have done, except for this other guy in verse 20, who's been associated with Jesus. Why is he tempted to hide his mina and not invest it? Well, not because he was afraid of other people. That's not what he says. Interesting, he says, I was afraid of you. I was afraid of the nobleman. He misunderstands the character of the nobleman. He doesn't say, I was afraid of losing the money or I was afraid what other people were going to think about me. But he literally says, I thought you were this way. And that's not the way that he was. So this man has to give an account. And in verse 22, the nobleman uses his own words against him. He measures him by his own words. He says, all right, so if this is what you thought about me, that's still not a good enough reason. If you thought of me that way, that I was a severe man, then wouldn't that have motivated you to do something? The man sees the nobleman as somebody who reaps what he did not deposit. He sees him as someone who's taking what wasn't really his, but the other people don't see it that way. Right? Verse 16, you see one example. The guy says, Lord, your mina has made 10 more. Verse 18, Lord, your mina. They see that what they've been given is from the nobleman. But this guy says the opposite. And I don't think we're meant to line up everything with this parable one-to-one correlation with Jesus and the nobleman. Just like, you know, when we saw the parable of the persistent widow and Jesus says, look at this unjust judge and how this widow keeps bothering him and he gets too annoyed and he finally gives justice. Jesus is saying, I'm like that. Just keep annoying me and I'll give you what you want. That's not his point, right? We're not meant to see everything as a one-to-one correlation here. But this man is misunderstanding Jesus. He hasn't gotten close enough to really know the nobleman. And so what's the implication? Well, if he only really knew the goodness of Jesus, he would have invested. If he knew who the nobleman was. So what's the judgment given? Verse 24 tells us that everyone who has earned interest on this mina will be given more. And look at this math. Whoever has nothing, verse 26, even what he has will be taken away. Uh, Most people think this is the most challenging part of the parable. But what we do need to know here is that Jesus isn't saying that your faithfulness in investing in eternity is what saves you. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying if you don't invest at all, if you don't invest this gospel that you've received as a deposit, if you don't care that people outside of Christ are lost and without hope, do you really believe the gospel yourself? Have you actually received it? If you don't even pray, if you don't even hope to share, do you understand it? Have you received Jesus or are you just associated with him? You don't really understand who he is. And so verse 27, this whole thing ends very badly for all those in verse 14 who reject the rule of this nobleman. And this is a sharp and graphic picture that is representing the severity of rejecting Jesus when he returns. Rejecting Jesus, you guys, is not a light thing. Don't take Jesus lightly. Don't just mistake goodness and grace as a cheap thing to be left or taken. No, he is the king. 
And I want you to see this as a good thing because why is our world a mess in the first place? It's because we've rejected and thrown off the good rule of God. So how is a good and perfect and true world ever going to be ushered in one day when the king returns, when all things are put in, under, in subjection underneath his rule again? So there will come a day when God will no longer allow people to take him or leave him. There will come a day when God in his goodness will put all things under the feet of Jesus. And this world will be a glorious place. Finally, I want you to see two encouragements offered in this parable. Because if if we're people who say, I have joyfully received Jesus, and people who've joyfully received Jesus are changed by Jesus, and the way that we're changed, we start investing for eternity. There are some massive encouragements here. Number one, I want you to see that as you invest, this is showing us that the gospel does the work. The gospel does the work. There's a huge encouragement here in this text that shows how the servant misunderstood the nobleman, right? The servant says, your mina has made five more. He's saying it's your gospel that did this. Notice he doesn't say, I had all my apologetics nailed down, right? And I was talking to that guy and I was just like answering every question he had and people were like cheering me on and like ooing and aahing and he finally was like, I have no more questions, right? I guess I'll follow Jesus, right? That's not at all what happened here. No, we're the mailman. You're just an investor. That's what it is. The gospel does the work. He goes, your mina made 10 more, right? That's That's a helpful encouragement to us, isn't it? I have a friend who's a missionary over in, Turkey. And one year I had him come back and, and kind of do a training for a lot of our people down in Corvallis. And um, I'll, I'll never forget the one thing uh, that I walked away with is he talked about the power of a question. How you don't have to have all the answers, but there's a power in a question because he said, when you ask somebody a question, no matter what they say, they will always answer it truthfully in their hearts. Right? So if you ask somebody a question, you go, how are you doing today? And they go, fine. Yeah, it's not, you know, busy, whatever. They might be faking it because inside they might be going, I'm really struggling. And they know that. It, re- it pulls out the truth. Like if you walk up to someone and, and you're talking to them, it's a friend, doesn't know Jesus, and you're saying, man, how are you doing in your life as you're pursuing this thing and that thing, as you're submitting to this idea or that idea, how is that working out for you? They might be saying, oh, you know, things are going all right, like it seems to be working or whatever, but inside they know it's not working. Right? There's a power in a question. Right, the gospel does the work. I heard a story recently about a guy who um, was witnessing to another guy uh, in the ministry Campus Crusade for Christ, is now called Crew. And he said the guy who he was witnessing to uh, just was really angry and argumentative and ended up just kind of walking away from that event. And the guy was just really discouraged, like, man, he was just so upset. But a year later, he saw this guy at a conference and was like, oh my gosh, that's the guy. He was at a crew conference, and he walked over to him, and he says, hey, you look familiar. Aren't you the guy that we had this kind of conversation, right? And the guy said, yeah, man, that was a weird day because I realized that you can win an argument in the day, but you always lose it at night. Isn't that true, right? When we're sitting there alone in the darkness of our room, lying on our bed, thinking about larger-than-life things, You just never know. The gospel does the work. And secondly, I want you to see that fruit is promised here. This is important. Notice that there isn't a person listed here who invests and doesn't come back with some kind of return. 
Do you notice that? We see investments that make interest in one person who doesn't invest at all, and he doesn't make any interest on this investment. Why is this so? This is teaching you an important principle about the kingdom. If you invest in eternity, there will be a return. Right? You might not see that return, just like that guy who, who walked away that day thinking, I tried to share Christ with this person, and he just walked away from me all upset. Right? He didn't, not everybody gets the, the luxury of meeting that person a year later, right? I sit down with many people who talk about their own story and how they came to faith in Christ, and, and they tell me about different events that happened and how someone shared with them that they rejected that moment, though, but later on they believed. And I often think as a pastor, like, that person has no idea, right? They felt rejected, right? If you invest in eternity, there will be a return. You might not see the return, but there will be one. And, and this is why we should take so much hope in what Paul says when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Right? If you invest, God will bring about, bring about transformation in the lives of other Zacchaeuses in this world, Right? You might not find this interesting, but I did. Um, I don't know if you know that um, years ago, I think it was 2005, they found seeds in Israel that were 2,000-year-old seeds um, and that were never sown. They were like in this clay jar or something like that. And they were Judean date palm seeds, right? These trees that had been extinct for 1,000 years. They found these seeds, they sowed them, and now there's these like trees again. It's crazy. You can go look it up. It's kind of fun if you like that kind of stuff, right? I'm sure Justin likes this stuff, right? But they planted these seeds, and all of a sudden, there's this power that's in the seed that after 2,000 years, I mean, seeds produce life, you guys. And if the gospel is a seed, it's going to do something. Do you believe that? I mean, do we really believe that if we invest the gospel in Gresham, in the Pacific Northwest, that this will be a different place. People will find hope, right? They'll find a home. The lost will be found. Do you really think that our city and other people in other areas are, are too far gone for Jesus? Have you written off Gresham? I mean, we live in one of the most unchurched areas of the country. And nowadays, people talk about America being post-Christian. I don't know if we ever were, right? If we're just being honest. And I think you could easily argue that. But good news. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's his mission. And that can be insulting to our pride to go, that means I'm lost too. We're all spiritually lost apart from Christ. And if you think about what it means to be lost, it means that we are not at home. I haven't arrived yet. We're all lost and we all need someone else to find us and rescue us. And guys, here's the thing. Being lost is bad, but being lost knowing that no one else is looking for you, that's really bad. That's really bad. And there are people lost right now wondering, is anyone looking for me? I've been reading uh, a book by James K.A. Smith. It's called like On the Road with St. Augustine. I think it's real life spirituality for restless hearts or something like that. It's been interesting and helpful so far. But he shares this image that Augustine uses that I thought was helpful 
Um, he, he says, imagine that you're wandering, wandering where home is, and you're wandering all over this world. You're looking for it in different places, different things, thinking in your heart as you're lost, like, is this home? Is this home? Is this home? And finally, you look out across the sea, and you see an island, and you realize that's home. And what Augustine is talking about is that island is heaven. He says, it's one thing to finally know where your home is, but now you have a problem. How am I going to get there? And he says, the beautiful thing is that as we sit there wondering, how in the world am I ever going to get there? We have this hope in the gospel that God sends over a life raft, as it were, and the life raft is the cross. It's where Jesus, the seeker of the lost, finds us. He finds us at the cross, the place where each of us are headed in our own lostness. He meets us there and he rescues us. Guys, religion is man's pursuit of God, but Christianity is God's pursuit of man. Jesus came and sought, and Jesus is still seeking today. How? It's through his word, proclaimed through his people. He seeks through his people. Right? You don't seek exactly the way Jesus sought, and we don't save the way that Jesus sought, but we go and tell That's how Jesus seeks. This is why Romans 10 says so wonderfully, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation has come to this house. Verse 13 of the same chapter says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And now, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? They're lost. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But those who say, come do what the family does, right? Stay with the family. It is possible to be associated with Jesus and remain unchanged. But it's truly impossible to receive Jesus and remain unchanged. And the change that Jesus brings is that you and I would invest in eternity for the first day after we die. We pray for us as we go into our time of response. God, you were the seeker and we have been lost and we praise you tonight. You were the God who took on flesh and came and sought us all the way to the cross. Help us to see tonight that it's there that we are found. God, we pray that you would help us see See our lostness. Help us to humble ourselves and to acknowledge that. Father, we just also pray tonight that you would encourage our hearts to be about your work in this world. And I pray that as we enter a time of singing and a time of taking communion and reflection, that our meditation upon your cross would fuel our desire to seek out others. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen.